But I can greet you in Jesus' name. It's good to be back with you this evening. Hope you all had a good day today and of your various occupations. Uh, I've enjoyed exploring the community a little bit, and uh, I had my first maple glazed bacon donut this morning. That was a good start to the day, but the best ending to the day was singing with you people. I was looking forward to that when I came, and I'm not disappointed. I'm enjoying the singing that's done here, and uh, enjoy the time of worship here together. Uh, one thing I always struggle with when I go places like this is what's needful to share? What do we talk about? What message would be appropriate? And uh, I often come to the message just praying, Lord, can you nudge me tonight for tomorrow night? Just a uh, sense of direction, sense of you know, what would be appropriate. And so last night after the message, I was considering what I'm going to share tonight. Then I got in a conversation with a young man that uh, reminded me of this verse in Revelation. And so I'd like to start reading that this evening. In Revelation 8, verse 3, it says, Another angel came and stood by the altar, having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, which came from the prayers of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. Now, Monday night, we talked about this inseparable and living link between the kingdom of God here and the kingdom in heaven there. And so there's, this is an extension of that. This is a sort of a training ground, a preparing place for that. It's like Jesus came to establish an outpost of what he had back home among men so we could enjoy it and go with him one day. And so we always have this influence coming from there to here. And God's spirit influences our lives. God's law, God's authority uh, dictates how we live and should affect how we think and how we view life. And God's provision, we pray for it, we receive it. God's influence and blessing is all here. And that's because there's things coming from there. But it's startling to look at this verse and think. Earth's influence also goes that way. Uh, we as God's people here have a chance and opportunity to influence what's happening in heaven. And the prayers of God's people are felt there and they're heard there. And here we have the picture of the prayers of all saints, it says, mingled with the incense before the altar, going up before the throne. And I believe when God's people pray, we're adding to the weight of that influence, we're adding to the, the, the savor, we're adding to the... Uh, the weight and the influence of what's going up before God. Tonight is not a salvation message, but I do believe that it's probably one of the most important messages to an ongoing revival in our churches. In fact, if, you, if we really get a hold of what we're going to talk about tonight, you'll probably never need another revival meeting in your life. And if we don't get it, and if we lose it altogether, no week of meetings can take the place of what we've lost. Um, God's people need to be about this effort, this work, because it's part of what God meant as we relate to him and, and share this relationship with him. So for a message tonight, I'd like to take it out of Luke, mostly out of Luke. Um, we have the Lord's Prayer in Matthew. We also have the Lord's Prayer in Luke. And in Luke 11, verse 1, uh, the disciples came to Jesus with a question. And it says, as he, and it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. 
I'm not sure what instigated this question, but the disciples saw Jesus doing it. Jesus prayed in their presence. He prayed alone. And they maybe looked at his spiritual life, his relationship with the Father, and thought, we like that. We want that. What can we learn here? Maybe the underlying question was, how can we share a life like that? Can we know your secret, your method, your, your discipline? How do we pray? And I guess we could just put ourselves in the disciples' shoes tonight and ask that question. Uh, request that thing. Lord, teach us to pray. And as an answer to that question, we have the following passage. And in the following passage, I believe Jesus is teaching us the model of effective prayer, the spirit of effective prayer, and the promises that encourage prayer, and the delight that the Father has in answering prayer, all found in the following passage and verses here. Now, I don't bring us this message because we don't understand it. I think all of us understand very well the uh, value of it, the needfulness of it, the effectiveness of it. We recommend it to each other. We talk about it. We practice it to some degree, but I believe with all this, most of us would still admit that we've fallen short. We've not measured up to what maybe God would hope and wish for us, maybe not enjoyed the prayer life we think should be possible. We, uh, I think sometimes we have been drawn into a lifestyle that discourages prayer because of the, the busyness and the occupation and the distractions that we've surrounded ourselves with. And so in these things, we, we struggle in quality. Uh, we're often distracted. It becomes habitual. Maybe it becomes we struggle with a lack of fervency. or We struggle with quantity. We tend to do the minimum, not the maximum. We tend to... Uh, our time is always in competition with the other demands of life. We struggle to understand the effectiveness. Sometimes we don't, aren't sure about the outcomes of it. And we struggle with the value of it. Sometimes we're not sure if our time is better spent on our knees or in action. We tend to be action-oriented people, at least some of the people I know, including myself, perhaps. And so we say we believe it. At the same time, we believe we could improve it. And I just want to be open with you people tonight that this is not a subject that I've mastered and attained, and I just want you to know that. In fact, this afternoon as I was thinking about this and studying, I thought through again my personal list of failures in prayer, and maybe you can make your own list, and maybe we share the same list. Um, I've failed in some of these things. Quantity is one. Uh, not enough margin of time, so we struggle with staying up too late, so it's hard to get up early enough, and we rush off to work before we're ready quite. And if we don't get some discipline in our lives, it, that's what tends to happen. We struggle with uh, failure in quality. I, I tend to. Um, I'll admit this, uh, I probably don't pray with my wife as much as I ought to. And prayer by oneself is great, but I think sometimes that prayer together carries a special weight and a special blessing. Those are the southern things that I struggle with. Um, and I ask myself the question, if in the times I struggle most in prayer, what's the reasons for that? And I know some secondary reasons. Uh, some of the secondary reasons are just lack of discipline and time management. Um, probably undisciplined mind, too easy to let distractions come in. Uh, probably this productivity frame of mind where every moment I spend 
before the Lord is one less moment to be out doing something that really, really needs to be done like yesterday. And so we're grappling with that. But when it really comes down to the primary reasons that I don't pray as I should, maybe we don't pray as we should, uh, perhaps we haven't sensed the urgency of the need of it. Or we've not let your, yet learned the comparative value of it. So those are things that I've tried to think through myself. But prayer is a command. It says, enter into thy closet and shut the door and pray. Prayer is an effective weapon. And in consequence of that, it's, it's effective in checking the work of Satan. It's effective in advancing the work of the Lord. And uh, wherever God's work is needed, prayer moves it forward. Wherever uh, Satan is doing his agenda, his thing, prayer can sort of like make the wheels of the chariot fall off. Uh, prayer is like Moses in the mountain with his hands raised. It's, it's effective in getting the battle done in the valley. That's what Moses engaged in. And because prayer is an effective weapon, our whole prayer life becomes a battleground in itself. I think when we pray, we are drawing a line where the battle really lies. In the lives of our children, for instance, in our churches, in the mission work, wherever Satan wants to make inroads and we want to advance, that's where we're drawing the lines for the battle to be fought. But Satan would love to move that battle line right inside my closet and beat me at the game right there and keep me from doing what makes it effective out there. And uh, if we're conquered within it, there's little victory perhaps out of it. And Satan knows, I believe, that believers that do not pray will not thrive and will not hinder him, will not advance the kingdom's work. And I believe his tactics are very simple. If he can keep us out of the closet, that would be an effective way of shutting us down. Life's too busy, too distracted, we're too lazy and undisciplined, our emotional energy is sapped. And when we make an effort and make it into our prayer time, he would love to just bring the world right in there with us. And you can't shut the door in your closet fast enough to keep the world out. I know what it's like, you know what it's like. You know what you should be doing, you're thinking about work and your project outside and and the phone call that's coming any minute, and what the children are doing, and, and that's where the battle lies in our prayer life. So all of us have a prayer life. It's either a struggling one, maybe an ineffective one, or it's a vibrant and healthy one. I'd just like us to come tonight and make this disciple's request. Our Lord teaches to pray. And make some decisions about it. Assess our, our prayer life and how it's going. I'd like to read next the following verses. Jesus in the next verses here shows us the uh, model of effective prayer. It's a very uh, familiar passage, although probably not quite as familiar as in Matthew. I'd like to uh, make a few comments on this one. But the whole passage, we'll read it in sections, but is in response to this question. So this is what Jesus said in response. Uh, <clears throat> he said unto them, verse 2, When you pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Give us this day, I'm sorry, give us day by day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so I look at this passage as uh, 
as Jesus responds to the question. Teach us to pray? Well, here's a prayer. Now, prayer is many things. And I believe prayer seems to be less about words and more about the desires and burdens of our heart. I believe when we think about prayer, we need to think about less about what is said and really about what is meant in our heart. It seems to me that uh, it is possible for us to pray one thing while putting our heart and energy into a different thing. And I don't hear you call yourself doing that. Lord, here's a battle. Let's make sure you win the battle, but I'm all about what's going on over here. Lord, these neighbors of mine really need the Lord, but don't, you'll never catch me talking to them. Uh, Lord, bless your work. Grow your kingdom, but I'm all about building my kingdom and my work. So we're praying for that, but we're, we're active in this. And it seems to me that the most effective prayer is the kind of prayer we've got skin in the game. We understand the battle. We know where it lies, and we're not just willing to pray. We're willing to be the answer of that prayer and willing to be engaged in other ways as well. Jesus gave this, uh, this model prayer, and I believe that Jesus is doing a multi-layered thing here. When Jesus gave this prayer that we often have heard and quote and probably memorized, he's probably doing at least three things. Uh, it would be amiss to say that he wasn't giving us a prayer that we could use and mean and, and pray for ourselves. And so he gave this perhaps as a prayer to repeat. It's beautiful, it's short, it speaks to many things, and sometimes we use it, phrases of it. And maybe he's teaching a format of prayer that addresses his priorities. That could also be what he's doing here. And so as we pray, we can consider this way of addressing God and addressing the needs that we see and that are existing around us. If you study through this prayer, there's seven phrases. Uh, the first phrase is just acknowledging and recognizing God. The second phrase is honoring God and worshiping God. There's two phrases about spiritual requests that relate to God's affairs and God's concerns and his agenda. There's one request for physical and material needs. And there's two spiritual requests for my needs. And if you want to break it down that way, that's what it looks like. And I guess if you really want to get uh, legalistic, you could look at it in percentages. So one-seventh of the whole prayer has to do with my physical and material needs. Two-sevenths has to do with my spiritual needs. Two-sevenths has to do with God's concerns about his kingdom, about God's will being done, and so on. But we don't get legalistic about it either. That's just how it broke down. And we can pray this way without hesitation. We're concerned about praying the will of God. But the third thing that I think would be appropriate to point out, that, that this prayer teaches a way of thinking and a way of life and a way of observing God, and a way of thinking about things around me. And uh, there's a set of concepts. You, you could do a whole revival series out of these seven phrases. Um, there's concepts and deep things there. So as we look at this, each one becomes more than just a request. It's a cry of the heart. It's a will to do the Father's will. It's a way of life. And you can look at it that way as we... Look at this prayer. I'd like to just go through these phrases if I could with you this evening a little bit. The first phrase is, Our Father which art in heaven. And uh, effective prayer begins by understanding clearly who it is we're praying to. 
And there's two mistakes that people often make when they come to God or think about God. One is that, that God is too small to do much or he's too far away to care much. So those two mistakes many people make when they, when they think about God and what God is and, and how we can approach him. And both of these mistakes are fatal to a prayer life. You can't pray effectively to a God that's too far away to care and you can't pray effectively to a God that's too small to do much. And so we have to get that straight in our minds. So the first thing Jesus does is correct our way of thinking about God by grasping two extreme concepts in one phrase. Our Father, someone so close, someone so intimate, someone so next to me, which art in heaven, the throne room of heaven. We talked about that the first evening a little bit. The God who is in control of all things and has his fingers on everything and can do anything. And he is our Father, and he is in heaven, and that brings two extremes of his nature close enough together for a proper understanding of God. And that's one, one thing he did here, is address him that way. He's large enough to do anything, he's close enough to care about everything, and he's a star setter and the galaxy former, but he's also the daddy who listens to the whisper of a child. And uh, this phrase captures both of these extremes. So we come to God like that. Hallowed be thy name. That word hallowed is uh, to sanctify, to venerate, to make holy. Now God's name is like that. It's set apart, it's holy, it's sanctified. And, uh, you know, we, we sort of wear God's name, don't we? When we walk out in public and we, people know who we are, it's like we've got, we've got his mark of ownership. At least it should be like that. We belong to him, people know it. Now, Moses sort of did that for God too. You remember back in Exodus when God called Moses to bring his people out of Egypt? And, uh, and the first time they were without water and God told him, go strike the rock, he did it. Got the stick in the name of God, went up and struck the rock. And the next time they needed water, God said, speak to the rock. And here comes Moses, and he was acting as God's servant, in God's place. And the people looked at him and knew he was the friend of God, and he represented God. And when he walked up before all the people to the rock, they saw an angry Moses that hit the rock. And God said, because you did not hallow my name before the people, you will not enter into Canaan. Uh, hallowed be thy name, and... You know, we wear that name, and our children watch Daddy every day. And uh, our students watch our school teachers every day. And our, our church members watch the preachers every week. And uh, the neighbors listen across the fence to the Mennonite farmer over there. And, and hallowed be thy name in all that we do. And that becomes more than just a prayer. It becomes a way of life and a personal sense of responsibility. And we live that way. Thy kingdom come. We talked Monday about God's kingdom coming to every heart, every life that's in submission to him. Rebellion will keep men out of the kingdom. Only submission brings them into it. It's hard to pray this prayer in a state of rebellion, isn't it? It's hard to pray anything in a state of rebellion against God. So you've got to get that straight. This becomes more than a prayer request. This is a personal responsibility. Give us this day is simply an acknowledgement of my daily dependence on him 
and a contentment with the things that the Lord supplies. We recognize that, that we need him. We can't do it without him. And God is concerned with greater things than my little things. I know there's big things God is doing, but at the same time, he does care. And God had big things to do in Israel, but he remembered that widow lady and her son, and he sent Elisha over there, Elijah. God, Jesus was dealing with eternal truths there about Galilee, but he remembered that people were hungry, and he took care of their needs. And, and God knows these things. We need food. We need money to fix our cars and put gas in them and pay our taxes. And he's able and willing and concerned about these things, and we trust him for that. Forgive us our sins. And we come to the Lord honestly and bow before him. We recognize right away we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not just 20 years ago either, probably very recently. And so we know we, we need his forgiveness. We want to be up to date in it. We ask him for forgiveness. But as we search our hearts and request forgiveness from him, we immediately recognize that perhaps someone out there needs forgiveness from me. And maybe I'm carrying a grudge or maybe... I feel somebody owes me something, and so in order to request that, I do this. And Jesus said, forgive. Uh, when we come to pray, forgive. And the last one, we see this request, uh, lead us not into temptation. There's a progression of thought here. Forgive us my, our sins. Don't lead me to the place I might fall again. And deliver us from all the influences that might harm us because we really do want to live a pure and godly life. Uh, and that's the way Jesus finished his, his prayer. And Jesus responded this way to those, that question from the disciples. Uh, so we can do three things with that prayer. We can memorize it and use it. Or we can pattern our prayers after it. Or we can turn these phrases into a way of life and way of thinking and way of living. I think all three are good. I think all three are necessary. Um, but these prayers are not just words from our mouth, but the cry of our heart. And that's what they become. Now, Jesus did not stop here with the mechanics of prayer. He, he told us a story that helps to illustrate the urgency and some other factors, the spirit of effective prayer. And he spoke two parables. One is here and one is in Luke 18. We'll look at both of them. But let's read this one first. We're here. We'll read the next few verses, starting in verse 5. And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto thee, You, though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, Yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. And so I'm just imagining how this story must have gone. This 11 o'clock knock on the door of this man, and here was an old friend from who knows where stopping by to see if there's a place to spend the night. And the friend was glad to have him spend the night. He had some things to give him. He had a place he could rest. He had friendship to offer. He had a warm place to be. But when he asked if he was hungry and said yes he was, and he checked his cupboard, there's nothing there to give him. Nothing. And, uh, and this friend realized something that we need to realize. This friend realized that 
He has some things he can revive. There's some things that are just out of his grasp to give. And that was just the main thing the man needed, something to eat. And so, uh, so he went to his friend's house and knocked on his door. Because he was sure that in that door there was plenty of what he needed to give to this man that had come to his house. Now here's a, here's a lesson we need to learn very, very well. Because all of us are faced with needs. If we're dads, if we're teachers, if we're pastors, if we're friends of people, we realize there's a certain set of things that we have we can offer, but we quickly run to the end of our limitations and realize that these people need something that I just don't have to give. And the only way I'm going to get it is go to the one that has it and knock on the door and ask for it. And so we do that often. And we plan this set of meetings, or you did. You had benches to sit on, and you had devotions planned, and song leaders picked out, and you found a speaker, and we, we had meetings. But we quickly realized there are elements of this week that not one of us has to give to each other. Who can give his neighbor conviction? Who can offer to his neighbor the spiritual food he needs? There's only one source of that, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can do the basics, but what we really, really need, we don't have. You have a family at your house, and you have eggs for breakfast tomorrow morning. You have a bedroom to sleep in tonight. That's good. But you quickly realize that uh, there's things there we, we can't handle. We don't know how to do. They, they have spiritual needs. They have uh, emotional struggles. They have attitudes to fix, and they've got, they have needs in their life. And, uh, and we often find ourselves doing what this man did. We go to a different door. We knock on it and say, they're hungry in my house. I don't know what to do for them. What, could, do you have something I can take home for them? And that's what this man did. Now, this, this response was slow. This uh, friend on whose door he knocked was very reticent. And uh, it's going to cost me something. He said, my children are with me in bed. I sort of imagine a one-room house. All the children are lined up on the floor. The baby's sleeping. And if one person gets up, everybody's going to be bothered. And he says, no, I can't come. They're sleeping in here. And the knocking continues. Got to give it to me. Got to get it to me. And finally, this friend rolls over and tiptoes out, gets the bread and opens the door and hands it to him. And the man says, thank you very much, and goes home to feed his hungry guest at his house. Now, some people look at this and say, well, this must mean God is slow to answer prayer. Uh, I don't really believe that. There's other scriptures that say he's delighted to answer prayer and meet his children's needs. But I do think it's good to acknowledge that when we come to God asking for something we need, there was a price tag attached. It took Jesus Christ on the cross to grant this grace by which he can forgive sin and, and give of himself and the Holy Spirit and the things that we need for our spiritual lives. We recognize that it's costing him something to do it. And so... Uh, but it's an interesting phrase. This man that finally got up and gave him what he needed, Jesus answered this and said, Though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. That's an interesting word right there, importunity. It comes from two Greek words, if I'm not mistaken. One means bashfulness and modesty, and the other means without. 
And so the basically together mean without bashfulness. It just means impudent, unabashedness. And it is impudent to knock on somebody's door at 11 o'clock at night. It is impudent to keep on knocking even when the man tells you to go away and be quiet. It is impudent and against all good manners to do such a thing. But Jesus said because he did it, he got the request he was after. Now what is Jesus saying here? I believe him to be saying that just because we know the Lord and are friends with him doesn't necessarily mean that it's all going to be made easy for us. And some of God's promises are conditional. Even though the promise is, is in Scripture and we see it written down, it's not just granted he'll hand it to you one day without you even thinking about it. Some we get because we ask for it. We recognize the need of it and we ask for it. We make ourselves available to it. And uh, Jesus is saying that, that prayer is not bartering, it's begging. It's coming and saying, you have it and I don't. I'm not going to go away until I have an answer. And we pray that way. Please don't send me away without it. Let's go to Luke 18. There's a similar parable there. Uh, the parable here of the unjust judge. 1 through 8. And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint, saying, There was in a city a judge, which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith, and shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. So here is this unjust judge. Uh, no higher power could move him. And uh, he owed no man anything. And he didn't need anything from anybody. He was sort of his own man. And so when this widow came, uh, he only had one place to go, the one judge to go to. And she came with regular reminders of the injustice that needed to be dealt with until he said, okay, I'll do it. And uh, on its face, again, we could say, well, this must mean God is hesitant. God is slow and hesitant to answer. But what Jesus said totally makes us understand. He says, God is willing, God is able, and he will speedily help, though he bear long with them. And uh, God's timing might be different than mine. Uh, that's part of why we think God doesn't answer prayer like we think he ought to, because his timing is different. He sees the whole picture, I see the next five minutes, or the next year, or whatever. And sometimes his answers look different than my wishes would be, and so we think, well, this isn't working either. But the encouragement here is just to keep on praying uh, until an answer comes. Now, he ends with this question in this parable. When, when God comes, will he find faith in the earth? And I'm not sure that it's talking about saving faith here as much as it's talking about asking faith here. Faith to ask. Faith to come to the Lord at these needs and, and ask. 
What is it that causes these two attitudes of insistence and importunity in prayer? Because behind that attitude, there must be something else. And these two, I believe, are only found where, where the needs are clear. Uh, if there's no friend at my door knocking on it, there's no call for me to be impudent about it. If there's no wrong to avenge, there's no need for me to insist to anyone. If there's really no pressing urgency in my life, then there's no pressing need for prayer either, is there? We tend to be prodded into prayer by the urgency of our, of our needs. And I would suggest tonight that a lack of urgency in prayer is not spiritual attainment as much as it is spiritual blindness. It's because we're not seeing things right. We're not looking at life right. Um, I look at my life, well, I seem to be doing fine. Look at my children, they seem to be okay. My church is okay. My neighbors are okay. What is there to pray about? And so we don't pray. And the result of that is these stagnant, maybe somewhat self-centered, somewhat formal little prayers that we do out of habit. I believe if we want to understand it, we need to go beyond the mechanics of it, explore the spirit of it, open our eyes to the needs of it. If, if we want to understand in importunity and insistence, I believe some changes could take place that would help. If we could put ourselves in the yoke with Jesus Christ and and feel his burden on my shoulders, I think we would know what to pray about. If we would give our door to be knocked on and get involved with people's lives that need help, and they start coming to us for advice and for prayer and for wisdom and for their problems, then we would know what to pray about. Probably if we open our eyes to our own needs, we'd know what to pray about. See, the Laodicean church was not a praying church. The church at Smyrna probably was a praying church because they had deep needs and they knew it. They were facing hard things. And that must have been a different, a different attitude in that congregation. I would have liked to visit them. But in every praying child of God, these two attitudes exist. That God is big enough and near enough to care and to do. And the need is great enough and urgent enough for me to get serious about it. Those two things have to come together in a life that prays. Let's go back to Luke 11 and finish up this passage. 9 through 13. And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Now, lest we think God be grudging and slow, and lest we be tempted to think that this is questionable, he takes his whole thing and hangs it on the character of God himself. And says, so if, you, if you don't believe in prayer, he takes the whole thing and says, put it at the feet of a God like this and see what happens. And uh, this is so simple and so bold that we rush to try to surround it with qualifications 
and what ifs and but he says everyone that asks and seeks and knocks and there are qualifications that exist but there's no person excluded from this offer everyone can ask I listened to a book a while ago by Rosalind Goforth I think the book was uh, How I Know God Answers Prayer anybody read that book um, I'd recommend it sometime it's a short little book but it's a book, there were missionaries in Africa, she and Jonathan Goforth, her husband. And the book that she wrote was a book of memories about God's answers to prayer before they went, while they were there, after they returned. And it was an amazing little book. And uh, they were trying to enter an unreached province there in China. And I believe it was Hudson Taylor told them, if you're going to go into that province, you're going to have to go in on your knees. And that was how they approached it. And many answers to prayer there, open doors, uh, workers provided. They had prayed specifically God would give them converts in the first year, and God did. They prayed for funds to keep on going, even when the mission said, we don't have money to keep you going, you better pull back. They said, no, God, we're in this, we're going forward, we'll just trust God to do it. And there was healing, and there was a miraculous escape during the Boxer Rebellion uprising. Now, this lady was quick to write, that God did not answer all her prayers the way she, she had hoped, she had wished. They had a number of children, and four of them died in China. And one of them that died in China was in the hospital with a serious illness beside a little Chinese girl, about the same age, if I'm not mistaken. And Rosalind talked to the mother of the other daughter and said, you know, if our daughter's going to live, we just have to pray about it. And so that lady took it seriously, went home to her husband. They prayed for their daughter. Rosalind prayed for both daughters. And the Chinese daughter lived, and Rosalind's daughter died. And so it wasn't the answer she was hoping for. When they made it out of that Boxer Rebellion, the, uh, many other missionaries were killed while they escaped. Uh, some doors remained closed, some open. But she testified that every step forward in that work was an answer to prayer. And for every door that was closed, another one was open. And God led them forward that way. In the end of the book, she summarized her experience of faith and prayer with these couple of paragraphs. She said this, As the past has been reviewed and God's wonderful faithfulness recalled, there has come a great sense of regret that I have not trusted God more and asked more of him both for my family and the Chinese. Yes, it is truly wonderful, but the wonder is not that God can answer prayer, but that he does, when we so imperfectly meet the conditions clearly laid down in his word. In recent years, I've often tested myself by these conditions, when weeks and perhaps months have passed without some answer to prayer, and there has come a conscious spiritual sagging. As a discerning soul can plainly see, all the conditions mentioned in the list below maybe included in the one word, abide. And this is some conditions she wrote down for conditions of prevailing prayer. Contrite humility before God and forsaking of sin. Seeking God with the whole heart. Faith in God. Obedience. Dependence on the Holy Spirit. Importunity. Asking in accordance with God's will. In Christ's name. And must be willing to make amends for wrongs to others. And then she made a list of causes for failure in prayer, and this is what she said. Sin in the heart and life. 
persistent refusal to obey God, formalism and hypocrisy, unwillingness to forgive others, wrong motives, despising God's law, and lack of love and mercy. And that was the list she left after an experience of life like that. But our hope and prayer rests on God's nature and his father heart. He's not uncaring like the unjust judge was. And Jesus said, if you doubt God's intentions, just think about the best father you can possibly imagine and think about what you like to do for your children. And uh, we don't withhold good from our children. We, we don't send them a snake in their lunchbox or serve them bacon and scorpions for breakfast. We give them the best that we can because we love them. And if we who are sinful can do that for our children, then God who is perfect can do it much better. Sometimes the reason we struggle with God's answers is because we tend to see earthly blessings as the greatest blessings. And sometimes God sees the earthly good as stumbling blocks that he's trying to help us live uh, around and through without becoming distracted. He answers according to his understanding of the situation. But I want to point this out yet at the end of this passage. In verse 13, it says this, If then you being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? You know, I believe that's the gift that God loves to give above all other gifts. And I believe he delights in those who understand that there are some things that only God can provide. God uses nature to some degree to provide clothing and food. He uses the economy to provide jobs and work. We still pray for those things. Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. But when we recognize that I've got a battle in my life I can't overcome alone, I've got a family that needs spiritual direction and counsel and influence, I have a neighbor that needs the Lord, I have a church that struggles with unity, I have a friend who who struggles with fear and depression, and I begin to realize there are some things in life that only the Holy Spirit of God can do. His grace, His presence, His strength, His wisdom. And how much more should your Heavenly Father give the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, to them that ask Him? That requires a deeper understanding, doesn't it? And I pray we'd have that understanding because that's when prayer becomes more effective. The New Testament expands to say many things about prayer. We don't have time to go further. I'd like to point out a couple of things yet, a few suggestions that I believe to be true about this subject. Effective prayer or effectual prayer is not about getting God on board with me as much as it is about getting me on board with God. And that's why it takes so much time. And that's why the word of God and prayer go so well together. Because we, as we learn to know his heart, and learn to know his thoughts, uh, we can then pray for those things in a special and effective way. Effectual prayer is less about praying longer and more about faith to pray confidently. Jesus said, you're not heard by your much speaking. It doesn't take many words. <laughs> in fact, the longest public prayer Jesus prayed, you can read it in probably four minutes. Simple requests, direct requests, made in faith. 
Effective prayer is less about words and more about desires. We can formulate prayers and say prayers and add the wordness, wordiness to our prayers, break out in our memorized phrases. We probably all struggle with that. But get specific. If you know the need, name the need. Uh, get personal and talk to the Lord like a real person. Get desperate if you have to. That's easier to do by yourself than in a prayer meeting at church. Uh, how many of you pray out loud by yourself? Sometimes I find that to keep my mind on what, my, what I'm doing, and it just feels like I'm talking to somebody that's right beside me when I'm driving, when I'm by myself. Um, just do it. Talk to him out loud. You'll get over it. Uh, if somebody hears you, they'll get over it. Effectual prayer can only flow from a lifestyle that supports it. Don't pray for a needy mission fund if you're living opulently over here by yourself. Don't pray for a lost neighbor you're not willing to talk to. Well, do pray for him, but also be willing to take opportunities. Effective prayer is sort of like all in and willing to be its own answer. And when prayer and answer seem slow, let's not give up so easily. Uh, because when hope dies, prayer fails. You can't pray hopelessly. It's just, you can't do it. I guess maybe we've tried, but it doesn't work that way. You see, answered prayer is not cheap, or else prayer would be cheap. And so we pray sometimes without knowing the perfect will of God. And uh, it's not always answered as we wish, but, but when God answers prayer, we sure don't forget it, do we? When God comes through and answers prayer, we remember that, and that's a faith booster, a faith builder. But back to the verse that I read at the very beginning, I believe that even the prayers that we pray that we don't see a ready answer to are never lost and never forgotten by God. And that verse that said, there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar before the throne. It seems to me that everything we've prayed on behalf of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ is somehow reserved there, kept there, kept in remembrance before the Lord until he chooses to do the thing that that God's people are asking for, for him to do. He does not forget. So that's the message tonight. Lord, teach us to pray. And hopefully we can learn his answers. As we go through our own life and uh, consider what our personal shortcomings have been and what some specific things could be. I made a list in my mind this afternoon, some specific things that... Uh, could maybe help sometimes a, life's, a change of lifestyle, a change of habits that would make my life more conducive to prayer. We don't give invitations for this kind of thing because we probably all need it and we all just recognize it. We go home and think about it. And may God bless that as we do it. We're going to stand together for a closing prayer and then uh, I forgot to ask our song. Did you have a song? Do you have one we could sing after that? Let's stand and pray. And then give the time to uh, Brother Joe to lead us in the closing song.